Amen. And please be seated. And if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And if you're visiting today or online and uh, just popping in, I want you to know our practice is to read three books of the Bible and teach them consecutively. So the passage before us is not some hobby horse of mine, but it's the next text in God's holy and inspired word. And, and where we are in 1 Peter chapter 3 now is we've come through two where Peter tells Christians to live an, an honorable life or to conduct themselves honorably um, as we live here in light of the goodness of the gospel, in light of knowing the grace of God in Jesus. And, and how do we live that honorable life? Uh, he's been mentioning um, how we submit ourselves to uh, human institutions, even ones that treat us unjustly. So in chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, he talked about how Christians are called to be subject to uh, state governance. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, how, uh, how he even mentions uh, servants, household servants or slaves, how they should be subject to household governance, even if they suffer unjustly, as our Savior Jesus did, who's the great example of how to do that, as well as the one who did it, uh, dying the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Well, now here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and we'll pick up 7 next week, Peter speaks to husbands and wives, Christian husbands and wives, how we ought to relate to one another. And again, it's about honorable conduct. How should a Christian wife this morning, in verses 1 to 6, live honorably in her marriage, particularly in light of being a daughter of God? in light of being the beloved of our Heavenly Father and a co-heir with Christ and as His beloved and holy and chosen and graced woman. If you're a Christian woman and married, how should you live towards your husband? Let me invite you to give your attention from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Amen. This is God's word. Let's ask him to help us. Father, grant that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path 
Teach us. Transform us. Make us all more like Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Peter here uses the word adorn. Uh, Three times you heard it. He mentions the external adorning, verse 3. He mentions the internal adorning, verse 4, and how holy women in the past adorned themselves, verse 5. What what does that mean? Well, to adorn something is to enhance the beauty or attractiveness of something. Every spring, tourists uh, flock to our nation's capital for the Cherry Blossom Festival. And that's because in 1912, the mayor of Tokyo gifted 3,000 cherry trees to our nation's capital. And, And each year, these beautiful white and pink blossoms all open up sometime within a couple of weeks span, sometime in March to early April. And one and a half million people come to see it. The flowers adorn the trees, and the trees adorn the capital, making it more beautiful and attractive. Other things, of course, adorn our landscapes. Maybe you've planted things like daffodils and tulips, peonies and lilacs, roses and crepe myrtles. Maybe you've gone downtown to the Christmas festival where the city has adorned downtown with uh, just thousands of lights. And so it is with Christians. We are called to adorn and to adorn the gospel as we blossom under its grace and as we bear fruit that displays its attractiveness. We adorn it to the eyes of others. We don't make Jesus any more beautiful than he is. But people might see Jesus as beautiful by the way that we live. Here, Peter wants Christian wives to enhance the beauty or attractiveness of the gospel by the way that she lives as a disciple of Jesus. And this is important in Christian marriage. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 31, 10 to 12 says, An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, too. He wants her, the the Christian wife, to have an eye in three directions as she does her adorning. Towards her husband, towards God, and, and towards the holy women who've gone before her. And so those are our three Uh, outline points this morning. How to adorn the gospel in the eyes of your husband, verses 1 and 2. And how to adorn yourself because of the gospel before the eyes of God, verses 3 and 4. And how to adorn yourself after the example of other holy women, verses 5 and 6. Let me invite you to think about these things in the first place, verses 1 and 2. How to make the gospel attractive in the eyes of your husband. Verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And Peter, of course, is writing to a, a very mixed uh, kind of people, but all uh, under the umbrella of the, the uh, ancient Roman Empire. And even ancient Roman pagans understood that marriage between a man and a woman was a really fo- important foundational 
principle or institution for the health of a society. Not that everybody has to be married, and you can honorably serve Jesus as a single person. But most people all over the world in every culture, not just Christian or Jewish, have chosen to be married and are. And, and the Romans valued a well-ordered society for the peace of the empire. And as head of the home, the man was expected to lead his family in worship and to public worship. And in that, in that day, they were expected his family was expected to worship the deity he prioritized. And so you can imagine the angst it might have created if a woman converted to faith in Jesus, but the husband hadn't. And she began to worship Jesus Christ as Lord and God, but her husband didn't. The neighbors might talk. What's going on in that family? The government might take a dim view of this his household uh, management or failure thereof. And his employer might question his character. So many went to the temple of the deity that uh, oversaw the blessing, they thought, of their uh, employer and their, their vocation. And now suddenly Joe shows up and his wife's not with him because <laughs> she's worshiping a different deity. You can understand uh, how, how that might create angst. A, a husband, especially a, a non-Christian husband, of course, here, uh, might get angry with his wife. He might make unreasonable or unjust uh, demands um, and mistreat his wife. What is she to do? What is a Christian wife to do? That's the question Peter is engaging. It's not a seminar on everything about marriage. But he says she is to likewise engage in honorable conduct. Like the citizen in chapter 2, like the slave at the end of chapter 2, she is, she is to be submissive, but not in just the same way as those others. Don't, that's not how the likewise works here. He's not saying she should treat her husband like a citizen treats the, uh, the, the emperor, and nor should she treat her husband like... A slave treats its slave master. That's not what he means by likewise, but, but in an honorable way, likewise. It's, it's not that her husband is the emperor and has the right to chop off her head, and it's not that her husband is a slave master and, and should treat her like property. But Peter here certainly isn't envisioning husbands strutting around with their chest puffed out, boasting of their power and authority over their wife, though many a Roman pagan might have done so. No Christian husband ought to take that view of their responsibility. And we'll get to you next week, but we have some things to say to you today. Peter is not imagining a Christian man and a Christian woman, brother and sister in Christ, marrying each other, and then the husband giving himself permission to be a tyrant. That isn't it at all. Both men and women we know, boys and girls, old and young, share equally in being made in the image of God, Genesis 1, and, and yet are equally marred by the rebellion into sin, and yet equally in Jesus, through faith in him, redeemed. And we are co-heirs with Christ, as he'll say at verse 7. We are co-heirs of the grace of life, both male and female, all the way back at Genesis 1, given 
as male and female, dominion over all the other creatures from the beginning. So I want to say, what a fool then is a husband whose basic, most fundamental operating principle day to day and week to week is do what I say. I'm trying to give you the attitude, right? That's what it all comes down to. Obey me now. (laughs) It's an already dysfunctional marriage. If you are always at odds with one another and can't agree to walk together with one another, and if the tool that you use, the only tool in your toolkit to keep it all together is a demand for obedience. I want to say this to us. If, if your marriage at its heart is fundamentally about authority of the husband to command and the supposed necessity of the husband to make his wife submit, then there is something seriously wrong in the way you are relating to one another. And I say that because the submission called here, as in Paul's letters in Colossians and Ephesians, is not something a husband is commanded to make his wife do. The fact of it is you can't make her. It's got to flow from the heart. It's as much a disposition that will manifest in action. You can't make somebody respect you. It is something she is called to choose to do herself with respect to not any man, but her husband. Because she's a disciple of Jesus. Because she's listening to Jesus and following Jesus and is willing to to do what Jesus says because she loves the Jesus who first loved her. So here, instead of patriarchal chauvinism, Peter is actually offering a redemptive vision of the Christian home. The first principles of marriage, I want to say, the first principle is not fundamentally, let's get that straight or let's get you straight. The first principles of marriage are about being a mutual help to one another. As Adam was a help to Eve in the garden, and Eve was made to be a help to him in the garden. Do you remember the language of the historic wedding ceremony? Our Savior has declared that a a man shall leave his father and mother and and cleave unto his wife. And by his apostles, he has instructed those who enter into this relation to what? Cherish a mutual esteem and love. To bear with each other's infirmities and weaknesses. To comfort each other in sickness, sorrow, and trouble, in honesty and industry, to provide for each other and for their household in temporal things, and to pray for and encourage one another in the things which pertain to God, and to live together as the heirs of the grace of life. And so it goes on to say the sacredness of the relation is revealed by the fact that the Holy Spirit has chosen it as an apt emblem or an apt symbol of the relation between our Lord and his bride, the church. That's the purpose of marriage. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her in service for her good at cost to himself. You husbands do likewise, but that's verse 7. The church responds to the love of Jesus with respect for him. You wives, likewise, to your own husband. So Peter says, verse 2, he will see your respectful and pure conduct. Pure here. No hint of immorality. Steadfast faithfulness 
to your husband. You can imagine the way the neighbors might gossip when he goes to the temple of Zeus and she gathers with a bunch of people in somebody's house to worship Jesus and the things they might say. And it's not that she shouldn't gather with the people of God, but her conduct should be unreproachable. And by the way, that just shows in Peter's own language, like with all human authorities, this command to be submissive, to obey a husband, is negated if he commands you to sin against God. Right In that situation, you obey God, not husband, so that your conduct remains pure even as you say no to sinful demands and do so respectfully. A Christian wife should have a disposition to honor and respect her husband even if you will no longer worship his pagan deities or follow his path of wicked idolatry. And Peter's purpose here is that you would actually have a, an evangelistic effect upon him so that he might be one. So that even if some don't obey the word, he means the gospel, they don't believe. They might be one, one to faith, without a word by the conduct of their wives. Your, your conduct will speak volumes about the greatness and the grace of Jesus. And Peter is simply saying here, you need not hound your pagan husband by constantly preaching at him with words. Words, after all, we might say, are cheap. I mean, they're true. If you're preaching Jesus, it's true. But, but love him with your conduct. You never know how it may work out for his good. Augustine, the famous Augustine, we know the story of his own conversion. Uh, I mean, raised by a Christian mother, Monica, and a pagan father. And he went far astray. And through the prayers, the constant prayers and tears of his his mother, uh, God answered those and brought him back. I recently just read about his pagan father, Patricius, which uh, Augustine writes about this in, in the Confessions, where he's writing to the Lord and says this, quote, she, his wife, or his mom, Monica, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. And finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. This, this deep and growing beauty of a woman who trusts in the Lord can have a profound effect upon her husband by the way that she treats him. And that's Peter's first point. Not only then should you seek to make the gospel attractive in the eyes of your husband, you should also consider what adorns your profession of that gospel in the sight of God. Verses 3 and 4 here. How to adorn yourself in the sight of God. Do not, he says, verse 3, let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear. Now, don't misunderstand Peter here. This is not a blanket prohibition of these things. As if you could never wear your hair in a bun or a braid. Or you could never wear a wedding ring or a necklace or an earring. Because if, if, if we take Peter strictly speaking 
and make it a strict prohibition, then what do you do with the last thing he mentions? And what is that? Clothing. And no, he doesn't mention fine clothing or expensive clothing or beautiful clothing as some translations add in a word that is not there. There is no adjective modifying the noun clothing. He just simply mentions clothing. And if you take them strictly literally and say you can't do any of these things, then it's absurd because he's certainly not forbidding the wearing of clothing. The point isn't the clothing or the jewelry or the braid. The point isn't that you need to buy all your clothes at Goodwill or Potter's House. And we buy stuff there all the time. Don't get me wrong. The point isn't you have to buy stuff there, wear them only if they don't fit properly and are drab and um, are already well-worn before you bought them. The point is not to focus on those mere external things instead of, or in the place of, or to the exclusion of the far more important internal things. Verse 4. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Like when the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 about choosing a king for Israel, it holds true for all. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what does the Lord say about the beauty of a woman? Proverbs 31:30, charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So Peter says in verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What beauty is imperishable? What beauty doesn't degrade with age? Wrinkle with worry. Get tough and dry and flaky from too much sun or need to be pasted over to hide its blemishes. Not the outward adornments, but the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, what is that? Gentle here is it's meek. It's an attribute of one who belongs to the kingdom of God. For Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. It is the expression of God's power and God's grace at work in your life to discipline your natural strength manifested improperly in an ungodly way. To be meek is not to insist on your own way or your own rights as you grab for power or grab for authority out of self-preservation or self-advancement. The meek, Jesus says, inherit the earth, even the new heavens and the new earth, as a gift given and received, not by taking it by force and resolution. You don't have to fight for everything that's coming to you from God to get it all here and now. We inherit it. And so God works this character trait in us, and it can grow. We can become more meek as people. But with regard to marriage, it's important. Proverbs 19, verse 13 says, A foolish son is a ruin to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Proverbs 21, verse 9, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop 
than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 27, verse 15 and 16, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Who can restrain her? The writer of Proverbs is inviting us to ask. Well, not her husband and not even she herself. Only God can restrain us and make us meek. Meekness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. And the reason it's a fruit of God's Spirit at work in you, and the only way you can get this, and why it shows itself in true disciples, is because God is slowly and over time transforming and renewing us after the image of his own son, our Savior. And of Jesus, he himself said, Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am gentle, meek, and humble or lowly of heart. Meek and lowly in heart. So... God isn't calling you to something strange. He's calling you to be like your Savior. With a fruit that we're all called to. But not only gentle here or meek, but, but with a, he says, a quiet spirit. And he doesn't mean by quiet here. Quiet is a church mouse scampering about softly in the darkness. So nobody can hear you. Nobody can see you ducking and hiding and staying hidden behind the walls. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean never speaking your mind because your lips are tightly zipped. The scripture actually celebrates the wife of noble character. Again, Proverbs 31. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of of kindness or covenant love and faithfulness is on her tongue. Rejoice for a wife like that. But what he means by a quiet spirit here is, is a tranquility or a stillness or an, a God-given inner calmness so that we're undisturbed in heart and in our heart of hearts as we find our contentment and put our hopes in God. Because your trust is in one greater than this either wonderful man or this schlub you're married to. Your trust is in one greater than him who has authority over him and over your every circumstance. And this greater one is the lover of your soul, the good shepherd who laid down his life for you and now rules over all things for your good. That is why you can, in trust in him, have a, a quiet, calm, contentment in him. So you adorn yourself, says Peter, with an eye towards your husband, and with an eye towards your Savior and God. And then also, finally, with an eye toward, well, the example of the holy women who've gone before you, like even Sarah, verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. He says there are many examples of this. He'll name one, but, but just for a second, there are, there are some wonderful role models of this. I, I thought of Hannah trusting in the Lord despite being barren, a grief to her. Trusting in the Lord, though her husband took two wives, perhaps so he could have one that would bear children. And he did marry a fertile myrtle 
And she was a rival to Hannah and mocked Hannah as she popped out kid after kid while Hannah remained barren. And Hannah did what? First Samuel 1 and 2, she called upon the Lord. She worshiped him in her heart and with tears. And with a pure conduct, prayed to the Lord in her heart while her lips were moving in the temple such that the priest thought she was drunk totally thinking her conduct was impure and ungodly, when in fact it was the very display of her godliness. Pure in her conduct and respectful towards her husband. Or think of uh, Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25, that God-honoring, wise, or as it says, discerning and beautiful wife of that, and this is the language again of the Bible, of that harsh and badly behaved fool named Nabal. When Nabal, her husband, mocked David and his army and wouldn't help him, he was about to lose his head and he didn't even know it. And on her own initiative, Abigail ran to David and brought gifts for his men and begged forgiveness and pleaded for the life of her worthless husband. And she saved his head. And she saved David from a guilty conscience because he didn't commit murder. A hasty murder. And so she honored her husband and honored the Lord's servant David by her wise and noble and humble and winsome initiative. Now there are other examples. Peter mentions Sarah here. That's his example. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, don't read too much into that language, Lord. It's all lowercase L-O-R-D. She didn't call him God. She didn't call him Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, capitals L-O-R-D. But she does use a term of respect for him. And and you'll find it in Genesis 18, uh, where where, uh, she speaks of him as uh, her Lord, or she speaks of him uh, as uh, we might translate it, and the Bible does, Sir. Or, uh, or we might say in our own language, a mister, a, a kind of respectful introduction before you name their name. Probably, of course, not with that kind of formality in the home as she talked with Abraham, but certainly with that kind of a respectful disposition. This is how, after all, the word the woman at the well used when she spoke of Jesus and addressed him, when he said to her, the water that I will give uh, will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she said, sir... Give me this water. Lord, give me this water. But, but she didn't see him yet as like the Lord God. She was being respectful. She says, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Or like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 who experienced the earthquake and the doors sort of blew off the prison and he was responsible at the point of death for any escapee, and so he feared and rushed in and fell down before Paul and Silas, who hadn't escaped, and then said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Lords. Same word. Well, she did too. Sarah spoke respectfully to her husband and of him, and she obeyed Abraham. Her submission manifested as obedience at the point where her will and Abraham's will conflicted. 
How can two walk together, after all, unless they are agreed? Asked the prophet Amos. How can two conflicting wills walk together unless at some point they get on the same road, headed the same direction, because they're on the same page? What's the alternative to that between two people living together in a home? War? Manipulation? Deception? Divorce? Sarah chose to walk with Abraham, the Bible is saying. And she chose obedience where undoubtedly persuasion didn't bring him to her way of thinking. And God calls Christian wives to walk with their husbands, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, not a step behind as the little woman hidden away, mouth shut, but in harmony and unity, walking forward together, supportive of her husband, a help to him as he is to be a help and servant to her. And so Peter says, you are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You share the faith of Mother Sarah, so to speak, and her God is your God. The God who kept covenant with her keeps covenant with you, Peter says. So therefore, keep on doing what is good and right in God's eyes. And don't fear your husband, even if he is a pagan. Don't despise him. Don't reject him. Don't make your home a place of hostility to him. Don't make your husband eager to leave in the morning and sorry he came home at night. Why not make him glad he's home? And why not make him wish he could spend all day with you? In other words, love him with a Christ-like love. Honor him as the church honors Jesus. And because you want your husband to honor Jesus too. May the Lord help us do that. We need a lot of grace. Let's pray. Father, give us grace. Forgive our failures as husbands and wives. And you know them all. Wash us clean. Teach us to love as we have been loved by you. Bless with great grace especially wives in, in difficult marriages, painful, hurtful, frustrating. Help them especially, honor you, and grant that those husbands would, would know more of your grace even through their godliness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.